Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. You guys came back. I'm shocked. Right? Romans 9. That was funny. Come on. Romans 9. It's hard. It's hard, but God's word is good, and it's good to be in his word. Amen? My name is Eric. If you haven't met me, I'd love to get to know you. Uh, you can visit after in the connection uh, kind of welcome area in the courtyard, or you can click the QR code and hit I'm new and give us uh, your information there. Same online. Welcome. We're glad you joined. Uh, love to connect with you as well. Um, one of the things we're going to do this morning is at our church, we have what's called membership. And it's not a country club. You don't get a secret handshake or a secret jacket or coat or some secret room in the church. Um, rather, it's a way of formalizing, saying, hey, uh, I want to be a part of this church, and I want to make it my church family. Uh, one of the elders gave this distinction. Like when you have a, a Thanksgiving meal or something, um, the guests, you typically you don't ask them to do anything, but the family, you say, hey, wash the dishes, change the diaper, grab a broom, right? Because you're family. And so in a church that's saying, hey, I want to grab a broom, I want to grab, I want to be a part of, I want to be accountable to, I want to grow with. And so that's just formalizing that relationship. So I'm going to, um, some were in first service, some will be here. I'm going to go through the names. If I call your name, stand. It's going to be weird if you're first, but that's okay. Then other people will go. And that's just kind of so you know, hey, that's part of the church family. And uh, they've, they've formalized that. And now you know. So if I call your name, stand, and then we'll pray. Um, Alana Tinsley, she was in first. Benjamin Wind, Corey and Melissa Wilford. Mike and Pam Lackey, there we got some in the back, good. Brandon and Connie Johnson, Ron and Betty Erickson, Jason Crossley, Eric Hartman, Jeff and Kelly Prey, Carolyn Thiessen, and Pamela Francis. Okay, so there you go, that's part of it. So praise God. I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into our service. God, we thank you uh, for people formalizing that relationship, wanting to be a part of the family, a part of what you're doing here. And we just pray we would love them well, uh, we would serve with them well, and it would be for your glory uh, and for our good. We thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. Pray you would teach us and unite us. In uh, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, fun. So Romans 9, if you, if you missed it uh, last week, a little bit of what's going on in the text, I'll recap it. I encourage you to listen to the sermon again. Is uh, Through Romans 8, Paul's kind of making this these last remarks on his first eight, you know, chapters in his letter, and, and he's going over, hey, God works all things for good um, for those who are called according to his, right, for those who love him according to his purpose. So he's making that statement, and then he's, he's finishing it with, hey, you can never, ever be absent of the love of God if you're his. Like, God's love is always there. And so he makes these statements, and what you have is a group of people, the Jews, and they're like, well, what about them? Because they, you know, they didn't, everyone's sin put Jesus on the cross, but like they practically went after Jesus. They denied Jesus. They hated Jesus. And they're being persecuted and scattered. Like, does that truth still reign true for, for the Jews? That's why in 9.6 he says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Paul's just like, no, God has a plan. And this is why we've, we've taken this series and called it The Sovereign King. God has a plan, and he's working it from beginning to end. And he, his promises he made to Israel, they're still going to be there. And he made a promise to the Gentiles, and he's going to be there. He's going to keep his promise. And, but as he unfolds that God's a king who keeps his promise, there's some implications that if he's a sovereign king, then what does that mean for us? 
And it's going to talk about God's power and his might. And what ends up happening is we tend to get really uncomfortable. And what I would like us to do is to understand we're going to have to live in the tension a little bit. But understand, if we could communicate God in two sentences, we wouldn't have a very big God, would we? Now, can you be communicated to in two sentences? Your spouse might think you can, but you can't, right? Like, there's, there's a lot there. And I know we like books about the Trinity with apples and ice, but those can't perfectly explain it, can it? And so what we're going to have to do is maybe live with some of that tension, but there's, there's something we have to understand is, God is not completely knowable, but that's not a cop-out to know what he's made knowable. Is that fair? He's revealed himself in his word, in his son, and in nature. And he says, here's some pieces that you can come together and and get a glimpse of who I am. And so what Paul's going to do is kind of allow us to peek behind the curtain and see what God does and how he talks and, and what that means for us. Now, when we get to the sovereignty of God, there's two extremes we want to avoid, okay? There's a group that's like, well, if God knows everything and God's powerful and, and he's in control, then why do I even pray? Yeah, that, we, we need to elevate our thinking. We need to grow in our understanding. And the other side is, well, if God has it, I don't need to do anything. The passage is going to say, God is absolutely sovereign, but you still have a job to do. And we want to hold that tension, but we also want to celebrate that, that God makes us a part of what he's doing. And what good that is and, and how awesome that is. So that, that would be my encouragement. Don't, don't fall in an extreme. Don't think, don't think prayer and evangelism is pointless. And, and don't think you don't have to do anything because God's got it covered. Okay? God desires us to be in that relationship. And if you got kids, talk to them about this. If anyone knows what it's like to feel like they have no free will, it's a kid. Okay? You ask them. They'll tell you. You're a king. You're a dictator. Right? And they have no freedom. And so they can sympathize maybe with what you're going through. So we're going to look at three truths uh, about the sovereign king. We're going to look at the king is just, the king is a creator, and the king is to be praised. So it starts off in 14 really quick. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. So God's justice is defended quickly and immediately. Because part of what Paul's trying to say is, look, God has a plan. And even it goes back to Jacob and Esau. Before they were even born, he said he loved one and he hated the other. And we we walked through that. And and what he's saying is, well, then if that's true, then God's not just. That's not fair. And what Paul's going to get throughout his letter is, Romans 3 makes it very clear, like we're all sinful, we're all sinned. God cannot be unjust, right? Or lack justice if we all deserve hell. Right? That's called, so the fact that any are saved is called mercy. And that's what Paul's going to get at. And so then it's like, well, do, do you love them more? Is God partial? Is he unfair? And he's going to tease that out, that God is not impartial, um, that God is just. Um, and God doesn't have to save anyone, but the fact that he does is what we call him loving. We call him gracious, call him merciful. So as you look through this, we're going to to unfold this, is that God tells us about who he is, um, and it has some implications for us. So let's look in some other passages. What do we see? 2 Chronicles 19, 5 through 7. Jehoshaphat is trying to tell the judges, look, you're going to judge on behalf of God, and here's how you judge, and this is what God wants you to do. And, And within that, he explains the type of judge that God is. 
So it says in verse 5, He appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do. Now listen, for there is no injustice with the Lord, our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. So what he's saying is there's nothing we can do to sway God's mind. There's nothing where God looks down, and we're going to get into the potter clay, where he goes, you're more shiny than them. I'm going to love you. You're, you have better blueness than they do, right? He's saying there's no such thing. So when you think of partiality, James tells us not to be impartial. Why are we impartial? Because there's something we like about somebody else that causes us to want to be around them. That's why the Bible gives the example that if there's a homeless guy who's wearing really terrible clothes and he smells, we might tend to not want to sit by him and then go sit by someone else that fits how we look, we think, and we act. There is a partialness. They're more like us. They add to us. They bring us down. They scare us. What he's saying is there's no part that we add to God. God never looks down and he's like, oh, I could be a really cool God if you were there. And you're kind of embarrassing. He's perfect and he's not needing anything. Therefore, he's not partial in any way. So when he makes his judgments, it's completely just. Why? Because we all deserve death and hell. And when he looks at there's nothing we can add to him. That's why he gives the potter clay imagery. Like now that I have this, did I add anything to my life? Some of you maybe love clay, think I did, but I didn't, right? My financial worth didn't go up any, might have even taken a hit, right? So is God saying, hey, he's, there's nothing we can add. He's not impartial. Now you combine that with the imagery he gave with, with Moses, right? He says, he talks to Moses, I'll have compassion and I'll have mercy on whom I want. Why is that so powerful? Exodus 33, 17 through 20. Moses is saying, hey, look, you called me to be your spokesman. You want me to go talk to Pharaoh. Like, I don't even know who you are. I don't know your name. Like, I don't know what you do. Like, help me out. I want to know you. So this is Moses' appeal, right? Verse 17. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you and have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. So this is God showing compassion on whom he wants. And he says, I found favor. So the fact that he picks Moses and he says, I'm going to talk to you. Now, if I say, hey, I'm going to take this clay, I'm going to go home, I'm going to talk to it, we're going to watch football together, we're going to yell at the TV together, you think I'm, that sounds crazy, right? Because the clay is not going to talk back to me, it's not going to add anything to my life. But for some reason, I want to talk to this clay. It's not helpful to me, but I'm choosing to do that. Is that within my rights as the, the, the maker of the clay, right, to do that? Yeah, and is it any different than this clay? You're like, why, why didn't he pick that clay? I, I'm, I'm just going to pick this clay. It's in my favor. God's saying, I'm going to do this, Moses. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Does God do this with everyone in the Bible? No. He's like, hey, Moses, I'm going I'm to reveal part of myself to you. But here's what you need to know. Like, if you see all of me, you will die. So God's communicating, I'm completely other. He's holy and perfect, and he's like, you can only see part of me. 
He's uncreated and infinite, right? We have to draw these parallels because when we start to draw out how God talks about himself and how God talks about us, clay and dirt, right? We're made of dirt and he calls us clay. You start to see this. It's like calling God unjust is really, really bad, okay? So keep working your way through it. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name the Lord. And here it is, picking up back in Romans 9. He says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not, be, shall not see me and live. Now, I think that's hard for us because we, we want people to see us and like us, right? Like, have you ever seen someone so beautiful you died? Right? Like, that's powerful, isn't it? And we spend lots of money trying, right? And sometimes we can't even turn ahead with all that effort, right? And God's like, look, I'm so glorious, so you will die. I'm completely other. So what he's doing in this imagery is like, look, this is an inanimate object. Doesn't talk, doesn't think, just is. That's us, right? The potter, he can talk, he can think, he can create. He's completely different. So when he chooses to maybe hold this one and not that one, do you notice the clay isn't talking back to me going, hey, why don't you play with him? And he's not like, hey, why him? The clay can't talk, can it? And unless I missed something, this clay wasn't like dancing, right? Like, look at me, pick me. And I was like, oh, wow, look, this clay, it all by itself stood up and danced, right? It's not Gumby. Someone made that joke earlier, right? So but that's the point of what he's getting at in the text. It's like, look, you're clay. He's the potter. Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The clay doesn't get to tell me, why didn't you roll me in a ball like that? I could do way more things. And this clay can't tell me, why didn't you make me into a circle? I do way more things. Look, it's how I made you. It is what it is. And so to call God unjust, he's like, you don't get to make that call. You're not the creator. You're not the maker. God's completely other and completely different. That's why this analogy is so great in Scripture, is that we can clearly see the difference between a material object and a person, right? It's like the difference between us and God is even greater. And he's saying, look, there would be injustice if you guys brought value or you earned. No one's earned their way to heaven. No one. And he's saying, look, I use these people, this clay, differently. So he gets into, like, look, I heartened Pharaoh's heart, and I used him, but that does not make me unjust. Why? Was Pharaoh a sinner? Yes. Does God make Pharaoh sin? No. But what was already hardened, he makes harder. And he goes 10 times. He gives them opportunities. He goes, let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And he's like, no, no, no. And he gets more and more and more angry. What God's saying is, I'm going to use that one man, Pharaoh, and it's going to raise up millions of people, Israelites, and they're going to see my greatness and my glory, and they're going to see I'm the true God and I'm more powerful than Pharaoh. And through that one act, starts Israel, starts the Jews. That's why he comes down into 22. 
He says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, Pharaoh, right? In order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Getting at this, we're not the potter, so we don't understand that in Pharaoh, right, create. Pharaoh's created. He's never going to love God. He's always going to choose evil. He's going to use that evil in him. He's going to keep making him angry. And through that, millions of people are going to put their faith in God and become Israel. Now, if we're looking at that, is that worth it? Is that worth it? We're like millions of people coming to saving faith. Is that a big deal? Absolutely. He's like, look, I'm going to use one. Save it. What he's saying is you don't see the beginning from the end. All you do is look at Pharaoh and go, you're mean. And he's like, I'm mean. Pharaoh hated me. Pharaoh thought he was God. Pharaoh thought he didn't have to listen to God. And he gave him ten opportunities. What he's saying is man is evil. Man will always choose not God unless God intervenes. The clay will not jump into the potter's hands. Saying the potter has to take the clay and say, I'm now giving you worst. I'm now giving you value. What about that? Don't worry about that. Worry about clay. He's the potter. You worry about clay and he'll worry about creating. You see, do we really want to put ourselves in the position to say, you know what? If God would have used Pharaoh and he only would have saved 100,000 people, then it wouldn't have been worth it. But if there would have been 101,000, 102,000, where do we draw those lines? At what point do we say, okay, God, I understood why you use it. Now it makes sense. But anything less than that, it wasn't okay, and you're a bad God. Is that the position we want to put ourselves in? No, absolutely not. Scripture calls us not to. We'll get into that. And this is why Romans 3, it's good to understand it. It elaborates on this. Look, there's not injustice on God's part. Why Romans 3? What then? Are Jews any better off? This is what you're getting at. Are they better off? Because to start it off, God picked them. He gave them his word. He gave them prophets. He builds a temple. He walks with them. He gives them the commandments. He's like, are they any better off? No, not at all. For we are already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. Both sinful. Both of you. But God chose to use this people. Verse 10. None are righteous. You're not right with God. You're not right with God. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Again, they're not going to jump in the potter's hand. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. That's the partiality piece. There's no value to this unless I give it value. And I decide, I'm not going to get rid of this unless you give me a million dollars. Well, you're crazy. You're dumb. Yeah, but I made it and I'm determining it has value. He's saying in and of itself, it has no value. It needs the potter to give it value, right? No one does good, not even one. He's like, look, Pharaoh wasn't good. And neither are the Jews and neither are the Gentiles. They all need God to intervene. They'll never choose God on their own because they're sinful. That's why God is not unjust. God is allowing them to bear the consequence for all have sinned and all fall short of taking the conclusion of their decision. That's just like, hey, God's looking big picture. Yeah, Pharaoh, but millions. What God's doing, big picture. He's saving and saving and saving. 
And we've gone through this. If everyone goes to heaven, then sin doesn't matter. Do we like that? Do we like the idea of Hitler going to heaven and celebrating what he did? Do we like that? It doesn't matter if we like it. It's not true, but right, it's bad. Everybody goes to hell. I don't like that one. I don't know about you guys, but I definitely don't like that one. So then some go to heaven and some go to hell. And what's the mechanism of getting there? He's saying, well, let God do that. He's the creator. You're the clay. You worry about clay. He'll worry about creating. God's using sometimes a vessel like Pharaoh, and he's going to show his patience. He's going to show his wrath. He's going to show his glory. He's going to show his mercy. He's going to show his sovereignty. Verse 24, even for us whom he has called, not from Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Like, he's going to save everybody. So you got the Jews saying, look, God doesn't care about you. He picked us. And Paul's saying, no, he cares about the Gentiles. You're supposed to care about them in the first place. And the Gentiles are going, no, God doesn't care about you. You guys messed it up. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Not all of them messed it up. Some of them messed it up. They're going to be saved and they're going to be saved. But it's not because you're smart and it's not because you started it. You both need Christ and you both need the potter to call you his own. Neither one of you can do it independently, right? So in essence, he's leveling the playing field. Now he's getting into the king is the creator. Okay, so this, this imagery of the potter, it's all throughout scripture. He's saying, look, I'm the designer. I'm the creator. You cannot create. Let God be God and you be clay. Figure out your clayness. Don't come at God. Because what was the person, verse 20, but who are you? Who are we, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Does this clay have any right to yell at me and say it should be like that? No, it's a material object. It literally can't. And it bears no right. saying, look, God created you differently. And God's doing something different. We have no right to complain. We can't look at Pharaoh and complain. Jeremiah 18.6 reads like this. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. He gets back to this in 21 now in our text too. Has the potter no right over the clay? Does the potter have the right to do this? Does the potter have that right? He's like, yeah, I'm the potter. You don't exist without me. And this is where people are saying, well, if God already knows and God's powerful, then why do we even have, it, have anything? Well, because God could do this. You like that alternative? No. He does this. Picks one. He's the potter. He bears that right. And dare I say, we don't want that burden. Do we? Absolutely not. He's reminding, because Israel's constantly like, but we want a king. I know you're the sovereign king, but we want like a man-made king. And we want to be like the nations, and we want to have festivals, and we want to have meat. And he's like, no, I'm the potter. I know all things. I know beginning and end. And Paul's like, look, God's working it out. I know the Jews, you think they're a mess, but God's going to work it back. He'll get to that later. He's looking at the Gentiles. Look, you guys need to still love the Jews. You're going to be a part of bringing them back into salvation. This is Romans 11, right? And he's like, look, I'm the potter. Let me create. You're not the creator. Isaiah 29, 16 says, 
You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Can you imagine if one of you said, Eric, you're no different than this? I would be offended. You might not be, but I would be, okay? I know I'm not the smartest guy, but I think I'm smarter than the clay, right? When you start to meddle, don't, don't call the potter the clay. That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed saved him who formed him, he has no understanding. Don't go there. You didn't create. You're not infinite. You're not all-powerful. You don't know everything. So before you going off talking bad about the Jews, talking bad about Pharaoh, saying God doesn't care, God doesn't have justice, he's like, ooh, whoa, 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 whoa. Two different categories, uncreated and perfect. Isaiah 45, 9 hits it even harder. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms him, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Such a beautiful part, isn't it? Has no handles. What is he getting at? He's saying, look, the clay doesn't get to say, hey, why am I not a ball like that? In this instance, I'm just a pot. I hold flowers. I want a handle. I want to pour out water. Water gives life to people. Water makes people happy. I hold water and things die in me and I get smelly and then you throw it out. Why don't I have a handle? God's saying, you don't get to decide that. What does that have? This has implications for us right now, doesn't it? Why am I not taller? Why am I not smarter? Why don't I have more? He's like, look, because I said so. I made you that way. You see, are, are, are we really going to be the people that say, God, you, you, this is beautiful, right? It's tall, dark, handsome. This is me. You messed up with me. Like, what were you thinking? Did you take a day off? Did I make you mad? Do I need to dance a little, sing a little, give a little? How do I get to be like this? He's like, you are not a ball. You're going to be flat. And he's saying, you don't get to do that. But God, I want to handle. No, you're not the potter. Does the potter have the right to say that? Yeah. This has huge implications for how we pray. Right? I wish I was a little bit taller. Little hip hop there for you, right? You got songs and things, right? I wish I was smarter. I wish I had more God guys. Like, no, 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 no. Instead, it's like, God, I clearly am not a ball. Help me accept the fact that I am flat. Now, here's the thing. Why does the clay think it has a problem? The creator doesn't say, hey, why aren't you more like that? He made you that way. He knows. It's this clay going, ha ha, I'm round and you're flat. Wish you were round, don't you? If you were round, I'd love you more. People would love you more. We create this problem. We create this problem. The potter didn't make you and go, oh, I totally forgot. You're supposed to have a handle. He's like, nope. And what he's saying is, he's the creator. How dare we? Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? So there comes a point when you're looking at your life, and yeah, you probably got mask issues and vaccine issues and political issues and school issues and work issues. You're sitting there going, this isn't fair. This isn't right. They don't have that. And he's like, look, don't tell me how to be the potter. 
You worry about being the clay. I created you. I'm working a plan. Love me, trust me. I'm the creator and I'm just. We'll get into a little bit further here. He is to be praised. But when you look at this, we have no right to do that. And we want to get into inequality. It's not fair and and equity and this and that. Like that's such an American thing to say. How do you take this God is unfairness when you look at what's going on in America and you go look at Africa? How is it fair that they get born there and we get born here? Does that seem fair? No, it doesn't. But go talk to someone from Africa. We had Vena here, one of our missionaries. She had cancer here. And I was talking to her and I'm like, man, you probably don't want to go home. She's like, oh, I do. I'm like, what? Don't you love it here? She's like, no, no, I don't. I'm like, but we have in and out. She's like, yeah, no, right? Uh, I'm good. And I'm like, this makes no sense. From her perspective, she's not missing out because she was not born here. We think like that, not the rest of the world. She's perfectly content that God made her there and she's flat, not round. And God has a, a mission for her and a purpose for her. And yes, she doesn't have a handle, but she holds water. She helps flowers give growth. And yeah, maybe the water gets smelly, but you throw it out, you get new, and it's a fresh pot, right? Content, this is where God has me. This is where I'm going to be faithful. I'm not going to get mad at him and go, why wasn't I born in America? Why wasn't I given that privilege, that education, that food, those roads? She is jealous about our roads. She said, our roads are really straight and nice, and hers are bumpy and crazy. But other than that, like, she's good. And that's what he's getting at. He, he's, he's leveling this like Jew-Gentile playing field within the context of sovereignty. Look, he picked the Jews, but not because they're special. And Jews, he still's going to save the Gentiles. That was always the plan. Jonah didn't like it, but God still made him go, didn't he? God still made him go. He matters. He's like, look, knock it off. Quit fighting. Quit bickering. Quit making it as if the potter doesn't know what he's doing. Because if you understood what it really means to be clay and that a potter would actually want to spend time with you, talk to you, be with you, you would quit bickering over his ability to be the potter and you would just simply thank him. Okay? Let's work our way through this now. Romans 5. He says, again, this is understanding where we are in the narrative because as we, as we pick up uh, 23 down and he's talking about he's prepared his plan and he's working it together, he's going to save Jews, he's going to save Gentiles. At 25 down, he's going to get into this language with Hosea that, look, these people don't deserve to be loved and I'm going to love them. And in order for us to understand just the chasm between the potter and the clay, we got to walk through some other scripture. Cool? Okay, Romans 5.10. For while we were, look at it, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Look, we we create categories that God does not create. He says, enemy, child of God. There's no like prisoner, guy with a white picket fence, Christians. We understand why they go to heaven We understand why they go to hell, but these guys, come on, right? Come on. He's like, no, enemies, two categories. That's it. He said, you are an enemy, and I'm going to make you a child. That's a pretty big shift, don't you think? 
Yeah, you guys still aren't convinced. Okay, Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What can dead people offer? Nothing. It's not a trick question. What can clay offer me? Nothing. Like you're dead in sin. God doesn't look down and be like, ooh, this one's got more to offer than this one. You're dead. Sin. You're always going to choose sin. You're never going to choose God. You will never choose God unless God first chooses us. Which is what's making this act of God choosing us so amazing. Instead of complaining, we need to be thankful. Okay, let's keep working. Uh, Ephesians 2, 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire, desires of the body of, and the mind. And we're by nature, nature, children of wrath. Pharaoh is a child of wrath, and he will always choose not God all the time. That's why when he goes to hell, God is saying, that is just. You will never choose me. God says, but I am going to choose some, and they will be my children. And I will pay for them through my son's blood, and I will make a way for them to be with me. And you are to call me merciful, good, and kind for that, not unjust. Okay, keep working your way through some of these. Genesis 6, 5. God looks down on creation, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is no third category. The Christians, the really bad people, and the kind of good people. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were evil continually. The Bible doesn't give much room there, does it? Two categories, right? Child of God, child of wrath. It's in there. You're starting to see this is your nature. This is your position. And God, not because we add anything or earned anything or deserved anything, chooses to take and call his own and no longer make you an enemy and make you a child. Those who are not his people become his people. This is extremely special. Do we see this? And what we want to do is, well, what about them? Paul says, I wish in Romans 9 that God would put me down, that he might pick them up, that I would be accursed. Paul cares deeply. He wants them to know Christ, but guess what? He's not the potter. He's not. But he cares deeply about those. He says, look, but God is not unjust for this. He is the one who creates. Now let's pick up our Hosea language. Verse 25. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. What is he getting at here? He's like, God goes to Hosea and he's like, look, you're going to go marry a woman who sells herself to make money. That's going to be your wife. You're Hosea. You're like, what? So Hosea's faithful. He goes, he gets a wife who had been selling herself and selling herself. And then years later, she leaves and she goes and sells herself and sells herself. So much so that she's now a slave being sold at a market. And God says, you know what, Hosea? I want you to purchase her. And make her your wife again. Seeing those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her, the wife, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And so he takes her back. 
He actually pays for her. She cheated on him. She left. She doesn't love him. Brings her back, clothes her, gives her a house, takes care of her, and says, you will be my bride. This is the imagery of us. This is the imagery he makes of Israel and the church, that we are adulterous, God-hating, cheating, slaves to sin. And God says, I'm going to pay for you through my son to make you my, my son's bride. I'm going to call you. Now, you're going to move from being a slave and selling yourself to my son's bride. I'm going to be your father, and you're going to be my people, and you don't deserve an ounce of it. Now, all of a sudden, you're, you're, we're getting away from, who are you to do? You're like, I'm just so glad he took me. I don't deserve any of it. I'm the wife that cheated, and I... See, in Israel, you go around and you want other gods and you want other festivals and the God who saved you from Pharaoh, you've forgotten and you hate him and you don't love him, but he's going to call you back and he's going to save you. He's going to make you his own. Now, 26, and in the very place where it was said to him, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. You're now a son because God decided to show mercy. 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. Because again, they're going back, God's not keeping his word. Like not all of Israel is saved. And he's like, no, Isaiah said from the beginning, there's going to be many, but not all of them are going to be saved. He's like, only some of them are going to be saved. And he's saying now in the second half in 28, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. God did not forget about the Jews. He'll get back to this in Romans 11. He's gonna graft them back in and the Gentiles are gonna play a role. And he's like, look, neither one of you are special. Neither one of you deserved it. Neither one of you deserved to be purchased and become a bride. God chooses to love you. And without that, verse 29 and Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? They are utterly destroyed for their sinfulness and wickedness. And he's saying, if God doesn't provide the avenue for us to come to him, we will be Sodom and we will be Gomorrah. God is to be praised. He is, he is merciful. He is kind, he is patient. He knows the beginning from the end. He's working all things. He's saying, just focus on your clayness and he will focus on being the king. But you're gonna need to trust him. You're not gonna have a handle and you're probably gonna want a handle. And instead of trying to convince God to give you a handle, just ask God to help you accept the fact that you have no handle. He's working out his plan, that's 28. And he's gonna commit it and he's going to fulfill it, and he's going to do it. And without him doing that, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, utterly destroyed. Now when you look through that lens, the fact that God calls us his own, we're clay, we're sinful, we're evil, that's a big deal, isn't it? Absolutely. This is huge. This is why God's worthy of praise. We all deserve death. And he's like, hey, I'm going to take you. I'm like, what about them? He's like, I'll worry about them. You don't know what I'm doing. Maybe, maybe he takes all, maybe he takes, you don't know, we don't know. We're to trust. 
And when people say, you should look like that, no, this is how God made me. I'm going to be faithful. And yes, maybe I don't like the government. I don't like the state. I don't like the man. But I do have a potter that has taken me clay and decided to love me. And no matter what goes on in your schools, in your homes, in your jobs, in your personal life, you might be hated, you might be detested, you might be falling apart. No one can take from you that you were a pot and God has picked you up. You were an enemy. He's now called you a child. You were a harlot. He's now called you a child and he is forever yours. And you get to come every Sunday and sing about it and rejoice in it and pray about it and then get sent out and tell everyone else, I was an enemy and now I'm a child. I have no value and yet he wants to talk to me. Like I said earlier, if I took this clay home and I sat it right down next to me and I just started talking to him, you'd think I was crazy. It's crazy that a creator would want to hang out with an object. That's God saying, hey, yeah, you're clay, but I, I have chosen to love you. I've chosen to give you value. I've chosen to be with you. That's great, fantastic news, isn't it? That's Paul's point here. You're going to miss the beauty of what God's doing if you think too highly of yourself or too less of God. Therefore, he's potter, you're clay, get it right, love him, trust him, work the process. Okay? Give us some questions now. Question one, in what ways do you struggle with the potter and clay imagery? Some people really struggle. Well, if he's the potter, what, what about me? What about my freedom? What about my choice? Look, in our sinfulness, we're always going to choose sin. Without him calling us, you're not going to do it. The other part is, do, do we really think we're qualified to be the creator? This clay, no matter how hard it tries, can never create itself. Gumby's a movie. It's not real, right? Like, it can't, it can't talk to me. It can't add anything to me. Rather than struggling with how much better we wish the clay was, how about we focus on how great the father is that he didn't even want to talk to clay? These are the tensions we got to wrestle with. Question two. If God is the potter and we are the clay, what does that imagery teach about how God chose to create us? This is huge for your kids. You might have a son or a daughter, and they might be a little bit on the bigger side. There's not something wrong with them. They don't have a handle. You're going to yell at God for that? They might be a little bit shorter. They might not be as athletic. They might not be as smart. Did God mess up? Absolutely not. What, what, what we have to instill is this is how you've been created. I'm sorry you're not the ball. People play catch with the ball. They roll the ball, right? They have all these things. That's not you, and that's okay. But you're still God's. God's still got a plan for you, and you're still his beloved. You're still, he still sent his son to die for you, and he's going to do something for you. It's just going to be different than the ball. Don't get angry at the ball. Don't get angry at God. Figure out how you can trust God that he will use you in your shape, form, and abilities. Isn't that a much better way to kind of, once looking at this? Of course it is. Okay, three. How does the potter and clay imagery help you pray? Instead of trying to get the potter to change his mind, which we won't do, can we, can we ask the potter to help us understand all that is there for us as created? God, you created me for a purpose. What's that purpose? You have me in a unique place. We're not in Africa. We're in Bakersfield. What's it mean to be in Bakersfield? 
What's it mean to not have a handle? What does it mean to have a handle? How can I trust you? How can I follow you? How can I be grateful? Right? This imagery has to shape our prayer life. What promises of God do you doubt? That God really loves you? That God can use you when you look like this and you don't look like that? God cares about the lost? That God, even though you have no value, that he's giving you value? Whatever that is, he's making it clear in the text. He's working out a plan and he loves you. Otherwise, he, he didn't have to save us. He chose to. That's great things. Five, how would you counsel someone who struggled with God's sovereignty and human responsibility? It's going to bear some responsibility for us to say, no, 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 this doesn't mean you don't pray. And no, 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 this doesn't mean you don't evangelize. Like, no, no, no. Pharaoh was responsible. Paul sees his responsibility. He's got to tell everyone, I was killing Christians. Jesus changed me. I love him. I was totally dead in sin, and he's now made me alive. We tell, we tell, we tell, we share, we share, we share. How do we help people? Quit focusing on, well, what does that mean for me, that I don't, I don't matter and I can't change God's mind? No, you don't want a God who you can change his mind. You really don't. You really want a God that's like, if you would have prayed 44 times, then I would have done it, but 43 just didn't, just didn't do it for me. If you would have given 20 more dollars, I would have healed your kid. If you would have sold that car, I would have fixed your marriage. God's just waiting for that tipping point in the prayer, and you just never quite get there. Is that really what we want? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely no. So, it's in our best interest. He's sovereign. He knows. He creates. Instead of trying to change him, God, change me. Change me. Because I'm responsible for what you've given me. I'm responsible that you've You've created me like this and I, and I have value and attributes and you want me to use them and I need to be responsible with how you've helped me trust you. I don't see it. You saw it though. Help me be faithful to it. Six, when you don't think life is fair or going your way, how can this passage help you? I know all of you guys want to get to Romans 13 and talk about the government, but the most important passage you're going to hear and this pandemic is Romans 9. There's a potter and there's clay. Guess what? We're the clay. Quit trying to tell the potter how to be the potter. Be the clay. And be the clay to the best of your ability for the glory of God and the good of others. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't make an accident. He's not dumb. He's not blind. He wasn't caught off guard. He's, verse 28, carrying out his sentence fully and without delay. It might feel like he moves like a snail. But what did he say earlier? He's patiently enduring and storing up to show his mercy and his glory and his power. And we are a part of that. And saying, God, help me focus on being faithful. It would be cool if I was a little bit taller, but that's okay, right? You made me the way I am. I need to trust you and I need to love you. And when you read the fullness of what's going on, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah without God taking us and taking us. That's a scary thought, isn't it? But if you really, really see that, I would, I would never, I would be an enemy, a constant enemy. And now I'm his child. We have every reason to sing, don't we? 
No matter what's going on out there, if, if you hate walking out the door, going grocery shopping, you get bombarded, social media, it's like God says, yeah, yeah, but there's one thing that can't be taken. You're mine. And I want to talk with you and I want to love you and I want you to sing to me and celebrate that I, I've done this for you. I've shown mercy on you. And, and we get to come and say, yes, yes, the one who's, who hangs stars like chandeliers is my father, my savior. He has purchased me. He has loved me. Much reasons to sing. Amen? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. And man, we admit these are hard things to read in the text. But at the same time, we confess that there is no better way than for you to be in charge, the potter, and for us to be the clay. We acknowledge that we don't understand the depths of your sovereignty, your mercy, your, your power, your might, your strength, your holiness. I mean, Moses couldn't even see part of you without dying. Like, we can't even fathom that. You're the creator that is that powerful, and, and you desire a relationship with us, not because we earned it, because you chose it, because you love us. We need to get our head around that in a way that causes us to sing and cry out and praise and leave here with hope and strength and power and might because the potter has called us his own. The sovereign king has called us his children. That's our prayer that we would now sing with that gratefulness and that thankfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.